Oh yeah, thanks everybody. It's, uh, it's a real treat to be with you um, um, from Bryanston Bible Church. We're, we're kind of like Bryanston Baptist Church, um, except we drink and we dance, and those two activities are usually very closely related. Um, and so uh, we're kind of Baptist, but we're fun. Um, and so uh, it's good to be down here in the fairest Cape with you and to be amongst friends. Um, I'm a little bemused as to why I'm here, to be honest. It was a last-minute invitation, and so I'm assuming the other speaker died. Um, and so uh, my sympathies to you, but also just a bit um, bemused because I'm a total simpleton. And as I look across the room here, I realize there are significantly better expositors than I am in the room. And so it, a handful, no, actually a dozen of you could do that more uh, significantly than I could. And there's better strategic thinkers than I am here in the room. And so I'm just going to come humbly share some stuff that's been on my heart with you uh, over the next few hours and then get back on a plane to the promised land of the lions um, and uh, go enjoy the sweet kind of feeling of victory that dwells um, in that city that you wouldn't be familiar with. There'll be... There'll be nothing new to you today. There'll be almost nothing tweetable uh, for you today. But hopefully something will just uh, stick in your heart and mind. When I was trying to decide what to speak on, I went back through my notes and realized it's been five years since I've been here um, at Common Ground. And the last time I preached here was from the first part of Philippians 3. And so I'm a systematic kind of preacher guy, so I thought I'd just pick up where I left off, uh, knowing that you guys would remember clearly everything I said last time I was here. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles, Philippians 3 is where we will be for this session today. Just by the way, I brought um, Ryan with me here today. That's Ryan Jones. Ryan's one of our church planning residents. We've got two full-time church planning residents, Ryan Jones and Matthew Thomas. Ryan is Chinese, Matthew is Indian, and so we've got the two largest people groups in the world covered. Um, and so that's our missional strategy for reaching the nations. Um, but if you get some time, uh, just be nice to Ryan. Just tell him how awesome church planning is. Just like that sort of stuff. Um, and just encourage him because we're hoping to send him out into another part of the city um, in about 18 months' time. The group gathered here today excites me and terrifies me at the same time. You, you guys excite me because clearly... God has called and gifted many of you in incredible ways to serve His church for His glory and fame. And I believe that our continent, now more than ever, needs flourishing churches. And what I see here is just supernatural ability to lead flourishing churches. And you excite me because you obviously have a desire to partner, and you obviously have a desire to learn and to be shaped and molded. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. But you scare me at the same time. Uh, you scare me because I think we have made stage presence leaders in churches into something they are not. And I worry for you in that role as I worry for me in the role that I play in my local church. We have made you guys into some sort of representative of the people who have the ability to walk people into and out of the presence of God. We actually hear these things said in church services and to speak on his, heart, on his behalf on a regular basis. Now, I know you're a humble bunch, and so you would shake your head and say, you know, that isn't your role. But I think we have geared things in local churches as if it is. And you guys and your families are the potential casualties of that gearing. I am less worried about you guys um, ruining your public ministries as I am about your guys' public ministries ruining your lives with Christ. Uh, I have seen time and time again... Um, people be able to bring amazing and profound gifts of leadership to bear on congregations, all the while their hearts grow cold in their walk with Jesus Christ. 
and the ministry doesn't make it better, it makes it significantly worse and much harder. And that's my worry for you. What this leads to essentially is play acting. There's a large gap between who we are in public and who we are at home alone with no one watching. And for some of you, as you pull into this session today, that gap you know is alarmingly wide. And it keeps you discouraged because you hate the gap, but you can't reveal it because it is so wide that you fear rejection and a loss of income <laughs> and then the lack of opportunity to build that kind of platform again. And so truth be told, many of us over years, it doesn't happen overnight, and it's not, it's not just because we've got evil, deliberate hearts in this space, many of us end up more passionate about our role as leaders in the church than we are about our relationship with the one that calls us to lead others. Now, you see, the truth is that everyone lives with this gap between who they are and, and, and who other people think they are to some extent. But ministry blows it up, and ministry success makes it worse. I speak to pastors all the time, and when you start to talk about this particular thing, they get really attentive, mainly because I think we all feel this to some degree. The people in front of you in the pews assume that you believe and live out the words that you are singing, reading, and teaching. And if you use your microphone or your platform or your, or your personality to speak and tell people that you also struggle in your faith, then they will say, oh, wow, what a humble leader you are. And then that just makes it worse because you know you aren't even that either. And so the gap grows. And so three things that are inevitable that will come along in your life of ministry leadership, I think will make this gap feel unbearable at times. And I'm very encouraged to see you in a relational network such as this one, where I hope you'll be able to reveal this stuff to other people before it scars your soul a great deal. Three things will come along. First one is sin. It's kind of just part of who we are. I wish Christian perfectionism was possible in this life. I don't feel that it is. Well, it certainly hasn't been in mine up until this point, and I'm quite old now, um, knocking on the door of 40, even though I know I'm in a 27-year-old's body. Um, but it's, uh, uh, sin is just one of these encroaching things that has a continual way of just dragging us down. And secret habitual sin will make you hate and love public ministry at the same time. You'll love it because it'll feel like redemption. You'll hate it because you'll feel like a sham. And if you're stuck in secret sin, it won't cease to be habitual until it ceases to be secret. But there's no way for you to remove it from secrecy <laughs> and keep your role at the same time. And so you'll have to choose. Uh, and isn't that terrible that we've created that tension for people? That you actually can't publicly repent of sin and keep your job. Uh, we, we've geared churches this way. And so we'll keep it secret because we love the role. Uh, secondly, suffering. Every, everyone suffers. It's part of a result of living under the fall. But if there is a big gap between who you are and who you seem to be publicly, then suffering will not just grieve you, it will wreck you and make you question your relationship with God. And then lastly, something that will come along to most of you in this room that I fear for, for you, is success. Now, something that no one tells you. Ministry success will make this gap significantly worse and not better. And it might come, that is ministry success, even if you live with a large gap between who you are and who other people think you are, just read the Bible. God uses complete and utter screw-ups all the time in big public ways for His glory. And so we don't get to say, oh, it's okay, because when I'm sinning, my ministry won't go well. It often does 
Because God gets such fame and glory from working through uh, fallen sinners like us. Many of you think or believe that when you have a profile, or when the book hits the shelves, mine hits the shelves on the 17th of May, by the way, just go buy it. Um, or when the conference talks invites come, because they only come for people whose churches are blowing up. I've gone to a lot of church planning conferences, and I've very seldom heard from the guy whose church is shrinking at a rapid rate. Um, when those come, then the walk with Christ will catch up. It will blow up as a result, because it will just catch up with this ministry success. The problem is it won't. The crowds and stages will be bigger, and the gap in your life will grow bigger at the same time. Okay, excellent start, Ross. Thanks. Invite the X29 guy to come along and be all morbid. It's what we do. Um, uh, but uh, what is the hope for this then? What do we, that was a funny joke. The X29 guys would have <laughs> smirked on the inside um, significantly at such a joke. Uh, what, if anything, can we do? Well, well, I think Paul can help us. And so if you'll open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, I think he's going to have some stuff to say to us. We'll go from verse 7. Here's what Paul said. Here's what we need to do with this gap, okay? Just acknowledge it exists. You're not who your people think you are to some extent. For some of you, it's not much, but for some of you, it's quite a large gap, right? Well, well, well what do we do with that? Here's what Paul says. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, the first thing that we need to do if we're going to be able to have an enduring season in ministry and be able to have a gap that is at least tolerable um, and treatable in our lives is to know our Savior, to, to know our Savior and to know Him well. Now, the, the biggest thing that your congregation needs from you, aside from uh, you know, appropriate fashion choices and good theology, is that you would know Jesus Christ that's the biggest thing that they need from you. Not, not strategy, not budgeting, not leader development. The biggest thing, the primary thing that they need from you is that you would be exemplary towards them in the way that you know Jesus Christ and know Him deeply. This is Paul's primary objective. It's his number one priority. He does a bunch of other stuff. He plants churches like a legend. But his number one thing is, I want to know Christ. I, I need to know Him personally as my Lord and as my Savior and as my friend. Your big job is to point people to Jesus, but you're going to need to know the one that you are pointing towards. Now listen, don't nod along and go like, yes, yes, excellent, Ross, thank you for that um, injection. Head back to Joburg. That was wonderful. This is going to take discipline and wrestling. This is going to take time in the scriptures and time waiting in prayer. Nothing comes close to the importance of this. And yet, I think if we did an audit of our diaries and of the time that we currently spend, it would, for many of us, not be revealed as our number one priority. Now, I'm going to speak about this a little bit later in the big group. But there's a worrying trend that I see in Christianity today that the Christian disciplines are somehow seen as some sort of legalism. As if spending time fasting and praying and understanding the word and waiting on the Lord is that some sort of thing that grace relieves us of. Well, these are blessed, wonderful opportunities to know our Lord. And many of us miss them in the busyness of sermon prep and hospital visits and <laughs> elders meetings, which are significant and massive and important. But if they, if they rank somewhere higher than us knowing Christ our Savior, ultimately they're going to widen that gap. And cause us to live with a lot of tension that we aren't designed to dwell with. Now, I'm the excellence in ministry guy. 
I want to see leaders in ministry doing well and, 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 and working hard. But I want our elders and our leaders to feel that nothing, nothing, not the Sunday gatherings, not the excellence in the music, not the ministry that will stem as a result, not leadership, not preaching, not success, not acclaim, nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. I want me and you to have that wonder. I want you to have that as the fuel source for ministry so that regardless of the season, whether it's spring or winter, you can say, I know my Lord and I know him to be true. And that surpasses, that's the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. That's better than anything else. We say this stuff, we sing this stuff, but all too often we go through long seasons of ministry where we don't know and live this stuff. So we pretend. All right. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, the exegetes tell us that word is stronger than rubbish. It's scubalon. We probably don't have an English word for it, but it's probably, you know, excrement or something like that. He says it's, it, it matters nothing compared to knowing Christ. I, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And if you've got your Bible in front of you or if you've got it on an app, why don't you just highlight this and be found in him. If you want to explain the difference between the, the, the gospel according to grace and works righteousness, this verse is a great one to go to. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, now people love that part of the verse. They don't love the next part of the verse. Part of knowing Christ is this. And may share his suffering becoming like him in his death because the more we know christ the more he's going to call us towards death right the more he's going to call us towards taking up a cross and dying to ourselves that we may gain real life eternal life the, the full life that he offers us but it requires a death that by any means possible i may attain the resurrection of the dead the second way that you're going to help to navigate and manage this gap in your life is to really fervently believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to know your Savior, so the source of the gospel, but then to actually believe in his work, the finished work of the gospel. Guys, you know this. There's theologians for Africa in this room. Literally, there might be theologians for Africa in this room. You should consider it. Um, hey, we really need some people to go from the Ferris Cape um, into some of the less fair cities of this great continent. I love the way Paul speaks about salvation. He doesn't call it inviting Jesus into your heart. And a bit of a hobby horse, I don't think we should either. <laughs> He doesn't call it giving your life to the Lord because it was his in the first place. That makes no sense. He doesn't call it one of my personal least favorites is accepting Jesus. <laughs> like he needs acceptance, right? If you would just accept him, he's like a needy teenager. He doesn't refer to salvation in any of those ways. Now, now continue to use those phrases. That's fine. But just understand that the scripture doesn't. 37 times in his epistles, Paul describes salvation as being in Christ hidden in him, found in him, raised in him, righteous in him, baptized into his death, raised into his resurrection life. There is no transactional relationship here in the gospel that we can step into and out of based on our particular success at obedience on any given day. I'll say it again. This is not a transactional relationship with Jesus Christ that we can step into and out of based on our particular obedience on any given day. This is an identity shift. The righteousness of Christ 
is gifted to sinners, and some of those sinners go on into ministry, but that righteousness is gifted to them anyway. Friends, what this means is that you are right now, regardless of how wide the gap is, regardless of whether it's summer, winter, autumn, or spring, you are righteous in Christ Jesus because of the finished work of Christ Jesus. You might not feel like it. I don't really feel like it today. If I were to go on my week and say, do I feel righteous in Christ today? No, I don't. But I am. But I am. Not because of my obedience, but because of His ultimate obedience. Now, you might go, pastors don't need to know this. We preach this. We need to know this and believe this and feel this and trust this because we're going to rank ourselves on ministry success, not on the righteousness of Christ. This is your new identity and it cannot be shifted. Isn't this cool? This is the nice thing about believing in the sovereignty of God over all things, including salvation. This identity cannot be shifted because Christ won it, not you. And the last time I checked, he hadn't gone back into the grave. And so while he continues to be the resurrected Lord and Savior, whom he declares righteous, is righteous indeed. So now you can stand, listen, in front of your people in humble confidence. Humble confidence. That should be the the posture of, of pastoral teams, the posture of leaders in the church. Humble confidence. Absolutely confident because your performance the week before doesn't change a thing in terms of your identity before the Father. But humble because even if you had a brilliant week and you've fasted the whole week long and you've memorized Habakkuk and and it's just been stellar, right? It's just been amazing. It doesn't change a thing about your identity. It doesn't change a thing. Now, those are all good things. You should fast. told you that already. We'll tell you that again later. You should memorize Habakkuk. It's a hoot, right? Okay? It's an amazing kind of (coughs) rant at injustice. It's an incredible, incredible study. You You should do it. But your ability to do it or not doesn't change your righteous standing before your Savior. What a wonderful thing, which ironically then should drive you to do it. All right, verse 12. You guys okay? Good. Not that I have already obtained this. Thank God for the Apostle Paul. I know some people think that he's an arrogant jerk. I think he's one of the most humble men they ever lived. He goes and puts there in writing, I haven't obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What a wonderful declaration of the gospel. Because Christ has declared me righteous, now I press into that, right? Now I pursue it even harder. Now I, now I chase after him that I might know him. Why? He's already, he's already won me. He already possesses me. Brothers, that's adult for you, brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Here's the third thing that you will need to do. I don't know how much time I'll take, Riggs, but um, I'm assuming we'll be just flexed here because I don't think this, this is going super fast. I don't think it's going to take that long. Enjoy your limitations. Enjoy your limitations. I don't know if you've thought about this, but this is kind of a theme of the scriptures. A bunch of nobodies made righteous by Christ, doing their best by the power of the Spirit in their generation, and God does remarkable things. That's it. I've read this thing. There's no one particularly remarkable in there except this one guy, right? Everyone else is just a struggler and a scrapper, empowered by the Holy Spirit, enjoying their limitations, doing their best in their generation, and God turns the world upside down through them. That's incredibly encouraging, guys. We don't need to be superheroes. Uh, Being human is this incredibly humbling and yet incredibly empowering thing at the same time. You can let God be God, but you can just dwell in the wonderful, image-bearing wonderfulness that you are and acknowledge that you can't do that much, but you can do your best. And then you can take a nap. You can take your nap. Uh, Steve Timmons is my friend. He always says, um, uh, Ross, do your best 
and then take a nap because you're a colonist. Like, just sleep like a colonist, right? Just trust God to do the rest. Do your best and then take a nap. Paul is very quick to say he is a guy with a large gap. He hasn't managed to fully put the gospel in play in his life while he was alive. Friends, you are in Christ, praise God, but you are creaturely and limited. (laughs) And that is wonderful. It means the saving of the world isn't up to you. It means you don't have to perfect any of your roles. The moms in the room, you, you can't redeem your kids. Do your best. Trust God. The preachers in the room, you can't save your audience. Do your best. And trust God, you're creaturely. You're limited, and that's a wonderfully liberating thing. So let me just hobby horse this really quickly. You are not a mediator of the presence of God. So don't place too much pressure on your public gatherings. The job of mediator of the presence of God, last time I checked in accordance with Scripture, is already taken by the man Christ Jesus. Trust Him. Ask His Holy Spirit to bless and anoint and to transform. But trust Him. Secondly, you are not an atoner for the sins of the people. That job, so far as I can tell, is already taken. And so pastor your people, pray with your people, repent with your people, but then trust God. Some of them are going to be a disaster. Do your best and then trust God. Uh, You are a pointer. You, You are a reminder in a world that forgets the gospel. That's it. You're there to wave the flag and to point people to Jesus Christ. Your job is to open your Bible and to open your home and to point people to Christ. More than that, you cannot and must not do. Now you'll go, oh, I get that, Ross. But a couple of things will give you away. Your prayer life would give you away. Are you someone who takes all of this to God knowing that He alone is the one who can do this? Or if you're someone who's got a, I got this mentality, your prayer life will give you away. And then your need to always be working will give you away. We've bought in, in church leadership, into the work modes of the world, where we're always connected, always available, always working, always traveling, always saying yes. Part of it is because we're trying to close that big gap we feel in our life by atoning for the sins of our people. And it's blasphemy. And it destroys our families and wrecks our churches and ruins our walk with Christ. Do your best. And then switch off and trust Jesus Christ. All right. I love Paul. Look what he's going to say. He's going to say he's got one point in his sermon left, but actually it's three. But if you look closely, it's actually four. So he's, he's <laughs> like a preacher who's saying, I'm nearly done. He's not at all. All right. He's just, he's just it's sanctified deceit. It's what preachers do every week. One thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Bit of a theme verse in my life. I I press on. So the fourth thing that you're going to need to do in order to just live with this gap in your life is you're going to need to patiently persevere. Paul describes the, the Christian life as a race and not a sprint, a long and grueling race at that. Our job is to dioko, right? That's the Greek word, to run on into fierce opposition. Now, we want magic moments, all right? We want, we want Bethel music moments to descend every time our worship leader plays an E minor, okay? And God to just kind of give us these highlight reel moments that we can Instagram and tweet out, and everything's always amazing. But most of ministry is like a slog. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And God uses it over time to stack up stuff that looks way more exciting and impressive for the kingdom of God than any of the individual moments. 
but we're going to need to persevere. Sanctification in our own lives is the same thing. We want to just stop sinning like this, but it takes time. And then, and then the frustrating thing about being a Christian is as you mature, you start to realize that things you didn't even know were sin are sin as well. And your, your conscience gets more fragile and you, you kind of, now you have to repent of those things as well. And it takes time. But, but you look back over 10 years and you go, oh my goodness, I'm not who I was, right? So to be sure, I'm not who I should be, but I'm, but I'm not who I was. And praise God, he's actually done stuff over time. Um, uh, I'm training for a triathlon. I know it's obvious, um, and uh, it seems clear that I'm going to do well. But um, uh, one of the things I hate is when we do intervals in, in, in running. And so what they'll do is they'll, they'll kind of stagger these intervals, and then they'll try to put a sprint right to, towards the end. To, to try, I, I don't know why. I think it's just so that you'll puke and they get to laugh. But, but, I, but I hate it. I know that last interval's coming, and, and, and you get into that last kilometer, and you know there's a big push, and you know your heart rate's going to spike, and you know you're going to taste blood the back of your throat because you got you got to feel this and you exercise to, to that extent to start seeing spots and your stride length now my stride length isn't super in, impressive in the first place okay so my stride stride length is about kind of 35 centimeters um but when you when you get into that space all the oxygen goes away from your muscles and your stride length becomes like you know nine millimeters so you become like these tiny little miniature steps that, that you're taking and you you don't feel like you're going to get on that's the language that paul uses for pressing on in the christian life You've got blood in your mouth. You're seeing spots. It doesn't feel like you're making progress. Press on. Press on. Take another step. The finish line is there. It's gonna be, it'll be over at some stage. And you'll receive well done, good and faithful servant. In the meanwhile, press on. Ministry's hard. It's long. And it's glorious. Press on. Patiently persevere. Guys, so much of your ministry is going to be patient perseverance and serving in total obscurity. It's going to be stuff you're never going to be applauded for because no one will ever see it. If you can't accept that, then leadership is going to be so frustrating and you're going to live with massive gaps in your life. Verse 15. <laughs> Gosh, I love Paul. don't know if I mentioned that. Um, but kind of a Paul nerd. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So Lex, you can use this in your Q&A sessions. It's wonderful. He goes like, oh, you're allowed to, you're allowed to think another way, but you're incorrect. Um, and so uh, if you think any other way, you're just a child. So don't worry about it. At some point, you will start to think like me as well. And he catches it in such language that we let him get away with it. But that's really what he's saying. He's saying, if you're mature, you're going to view things this way. And you can press against it all you like, but, but God will reveal this to you as well. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. How confidently would you be able to say that in front of your people? Uh, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Here's the next thing that you'll need. You'll need to live in genuine gospel-centered community. Uh, live in genuine gospel-centered community. For Paul and for the rest of the scripture writers, the journey with God is by its very nature a journey with other people. Now we have created a weird culture where the people on the stage are separated from the people in the pews, and that isn't healthy. And again, the more ministry success you get, the further they'll separate you out from the people that God has called you to serve. And it's daft. It's completely daft. And it wrecks lives. How many more high-profile ministry failures do we need to see? And so we say, don't separate 
yourself out from your people. Ministry success will get you a corner office and a security guard and advanced access into your own private gold-plated toilet where you never need to see the sinners that God has called you to minister amongst. But then how are you going to minister to them faithfully? The more successful you are, the more tempted you will be to pull away from the people that God has called you to serve. Paul wants people to have eyes on him and he has his eyes on others. How is he going to do that? except by living in the middle of the community that he has been called to serve. Eugene Peterson says, Sure. The role of a church pastor is to live in the middle of his congregation and to love God. The role of the church pastor is to live in the middle of his congregation and to love God. Your role is similar. You should know the people you serve and they should know you. That will never happen from stage regardless of how many witty analogies you tell about your family. They will think they know you. They will only know you when they sit across the dining room table from you, whether that be yours or theirs. You should share both of those regularly, frequently, with Christ at the center. I'm an introvert, right? Okay, so you'll notice in the break, you'll find me standing alone in the corner. That's not a cry for help. Um, that's not a desire to start a conversation, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> I'm fine, okay? Absolutely fine. I may use the device of the day to distract. I'm just staring at a blank screen. Um, but, but it's my default to pull away. But as a pastor, what I have to do is fight that, not to change my personality, but through the gospel to say, I just won't allow myself to become isolated. I'm going to let people know me, and I'm going to know the people that I serve. Otherwise, this ministry thing is going to crush me. Uh, it's going to crush me. You will be found out uh, sooner or later, uh, regardless of how well you hide. All right. Verse 18. And then he's done. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. Don't we see a lot of this in culture today? Right? We see a lot of this. The, the, the glory in what was formerly known as shameful. With minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body. Oh, what a verse. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The the last principle that you're going to need to have in your mind if you're going to dwell well with this gap between who you are and who people think you are is you're going to need to learn to practice for heaven and you need to learn to practice for heaven one day this gap will be gone isn't that great news one day we'll be fully sanctified we'll be fully like our lord in these wonderful resurrected bodies in the meanwhile we must take every opportunity we have to remind our people and ourselves of the reality of eternity and of the reality of the kingdom that we're really called to live as citizens of. Uh, People who do the most for this life are those who think the most of the next, to paraphrase Lewis. Uh, It it really is. Uh, uh, We we would often say that people can be too heavenly minded to be too, uh, to be no, and end up being no earthly good, right? They're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. I actually don't think it's possible. I think if we have our minds rightly in the kingdom of heaven, not where we will be cherubs playing harps and being, you know, just fat babies for the rest of time. 
but we will be ruling and reigning in the new Jerusalem, in this wonderful heavenly city. If our minds are on that, it actually adjusts so much of our perspective here for our life here. And we end up being way more useful to the kingdoms of this world when our hearts are set in the kingdoms of the next. Some of you are tired. Rest is coming. Uh, Some of you are discouraged. Reward is coming. Some of you are (laughs) financially strained. Unfortunately, being in the theological circles that that we're in, um, prosperity theology doesn't really fly. Well, well, a great inheritance is coming. A great inheritance is coming. And it'll do us a lot of good to dwell on those things and to let them encourage us for the season ahead. Some of you, I don't, I don't know you guys well enough, and perhaps you're just more godly than the pastors in my normal context. But some of you are probably discouraged by the large gap between who people think you are, maybe even people in this room, and who you actually are when you go home and it's just you and your Lord. Well, know your Savior. <coughs> believe the gospel. Enjoy your limitations. Patiently persevere. <coughs> do all you can to live in genuine community. And practice for heaven. And wait eagerly for the return of your king. It won't be long. Can I pray for you? God, I have um, felt what it's like again and again to feel the agonizing blow of the accuser who reminds us time and time again of the gaps between who people think we are and who we really are. There's, There's gaps between the stuff we write on blogs and the way we actually live gaps between the stuff we say <coughs> and the way we actually live. There's gaps between our public devotion to you and our private devotion to you. And, and we do take time to repent of those and to bring them before you, Father, and to ask you again to just give us